the accidental engineer. Welcome all, Max is the accidental engineer here. Today, we have the pleasure of Will Ballard joining us. Welcome, Will. Hi, thanks. Will is CTO at GLG, or Gerson Learman Group. One of the reasons I think it's great to have Will on the show is he and I have a very ridiculously similar background, having the same alma mater, doing uh, math undergrad and not computer science. So I thought it would be great to hear from you, Will. Do you mind telling us a little bit about uh, how you ended up in software engineering? Yeah, I mean, it was well, well more than 20 years ago, so the market was different. And we remember a story from like the freshman year of college. There was a, an insurance agency a few blocks from school. And they'd send an email in to one of the mailing lists. I mean, we, we had email agents back then. And email list into, into, G, into CMC. And I responded to it and was helping them out because they needed some computer systems in order to do, uh, what was it, fleet bus auto insurance for like Caltrans. And I get over there, I'm like, great. I'm like, what kind of computers do you have? I need, I need to write some software. And they're like, we need computers. I'm like, okay, great. We need to get you computers. And what kind of network do you want? I'm like, oh, we don't have a network either. So like back in, you know, so way back in the days, like 1993, um, computing was as much about writing the software as it was about setting up systems in small and medium businesses. And so getting into it was really just about business problem solving from my point of view. I mean, like the programming was a means to an end to solve a business problem and not necessarily computer science focus. And I really started off, uh, not even a math major, I started off like everybody else, like majoring in whatever, which happened to be biology or not even, you know, worried about the freshman year and started writing software because I learned to program as a kid just, just because. Like I learned to program maybe when I was eight, nine years old and really enjoyed solving people's business problems. And so the dirty secret on the why I have a math degree is because it's a degree you can get purely on aptitude. You don't have to show up. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So I, I had plenty of math classes where I took the final and didn't go. Right. That was kind of a, that was one of the joys of it is I could run, you know, essentially run my business of small business software consulting, like insurance policies and uh, billing systems for ISPs. That was the other thing I did a lot when I was a kid and I didn't, I didn't really have to go to school. <laughs> Would you do it uh, in a full-time remote fashion? Were you a sole proprietor or LLC or? Uh, LLC and I had like several other students that actually worked with me and we'd write some software and build reports and build computers and install computers. We would do remote, most, uh, most all the clients were in Southern California. I mean, we had insurance agencies, we had ISPs, like first generation like dial-up modem ISPs. We did billing software, that was a very interesting niche. And then I had San Bernardino public schools i did their scheduling software mm -hmm. so like a little like an ai system that would like take all the classes and all the students and all the teachers and like find find an optimal schedule to so that everybody could have as many of the classes they wanted and the teachers could teach where they wanted and stuff mm -hmm. it was actually kind of fun yeah to add a little bit of context here our alma mater is claremont mckenna college down in la or should i say east east la east la yeah east la that's what we're saying it's like almost san Bernardino county but not quite yeah well, I mean, I guess LA isn't isn't quite, uh, especially in that era, isn't quite uh, Silicon Valley, or or the modern tech ecosystem where where you have your unicorn size Googles and and whatnot. What kind of has changed most radically about uh, the profession of software engineering between now and then? It sounds like some of it is you don't have to touch hardware anymore. Is that fair to say? You definitely don't have to touch hardware anymore. I mean, I guess you can if you want, but um... Functionally, everything happening is headed toward the cloud or there already. 
So computers are a faraway phenomenon rather than a local phenomenon. Like doing startups in the late 90s, the physical plant build out, data center, data center engineers, wiring, power, air conditioning, like all those were things we had to worry about to launch startups and applications in the 90s. And now it's like, I don't even worry about it at all. And mm -hmm. so like, I, I no longer have to understand HVAC engineering in order to run my, in order to run my company, which is kind of nice. Though, though I am installing an air conditioner this weekend into my workshop because I still know how to do that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> It, it really is not necessary in order to end end do software engineering anymore. And obviously there were folks who didn't understand that back then. They, could, they knew how to just program and, you know, didn't understand the hardware, didn't understand the physical plan. But definitely to be in charge, you had to know at least of all those things so you could interview and hire the folks to get it done. When it came to learning that stuff back then, was there resources online when it came to uh, learning about HVAC or, or were those lessons learned the hard way? Yeah, the lessons learned the hard way. I mean, this was sort of like, you know, mid, mid nineties, there was you know, mid late nineties, there was sort of barely internet. So you sort of learned it by folklore from other IT or technology professionals you ran into. Um, and certainly there were still, I mean, there were big software companies at the time. There was like Microsoft and Oracle um, in, in particular, uh, IBM and CA as well as the next tier down. And they were, um, you know, closer to what you'd be used to today. And they were like packaged PC software companies, particularly like Southern California. Um, a lot of the game studios were there. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of the utility companies. I worked at this little company called Quarterdeck, um, like right after college, which did um, utilities and uninstallers of all things. Like our main product was a software uninstaller for uh, Windows, uh, Windows 95 <laughs> at the time. And then there was a time and a place where like, you could have a business that sold software that uninstalled software. That was it. <laughs> and, um, and it was totally like desktop software. Uh, so that, so there was a, you know, there was a nascent software industry, but there wasn't really any internet industry, you know, in the mid, mid nineties, like that really didn't get started in earnest until I call it 96, 97. Though I did build CMC's very first website myself. Back in <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> I got to tell some of my friends about that. Like I am that guy. I built the first website in the summer of 1994 for CMC. <laughs> Do you mind sharing what the stack looked like? What I mean, there was no PHP. Oh, there was no stack. This is pre-stack. What there was was a, a handful of Perl scripts and CGI bin, and um, mostly a lot of static HTML. And then I took to a system of offline publishing where you know you couldn't get the stuff to run reliably enough on the CGI style. So we would have our database or files and our templates and Perl scripts. And we would, I'd call it print the website through a series <laughs> of flat HTML files. And yeah. then you could serve it with uh, uh, the NCSA web server, which, which you know, there are basically two choices at the time. Um, that being one and the other being Netscape if I remember right, like there wasn't even really Apache yet. It didn't get, it didn't start to get called that till later. There was the NCSA web daemon. Humorously, that sounds yeah. pretty web scale in terms of scalability in terms of- Well, no, it is. Like, we, use files. The same, <laughs> we, same, we use the same trick 20 years later when you're like, how can you make this thing be super reliable and fast and do like edge cache? And the answer is print the website to files. Like, <laughs> like yeah, it turns out that was the, that is the, the way, because it particularly for like content networking and the CDN, it's a good way to get it done. You know, it's interesting. That's actually how the AccidentalEngineer.com is hosted is using a static site generator where you totally. yeah. quote unquote print the files out mm -hmm. <laughs> and distribute them uh, to CDN. 
<laughs> but yeah, we had we had Perl for sure. We had C, C++ for sure. I think Python existed and I knew of it, but nobody used it. Uh, Ruby existed and nobody used it unless they were Japanese and knew maths personally. Um, so like, yeah, it was like, it's like the super duper way back. And, and most like sort of uh, business software was massively dominated by uh, really by Visual Basic or one of the, I'll call it like, uh, like 4GL databases like Power Builder or Paradox or Access or uh, if you ever rely on like a bigger systems like stuff like vtree because it was all it was all a very very different kind of environment because you were building applications that if 20 people used it it was a big application in a lot of scenarios yeah. mm -hmm. now hindsight is pretty 2020 understandably but given looking back at that era are are there any surprising things people might not know about technologies that survived or technologies that are no longer around that you thought might be I don't know the stuff that survived. I mean, Unix was definitely a survivor from the time frame, in that you know the, the sort of sheer simplicity of it has lived through really well. Windows is still largely similar compared to like Windows ninety five. I mean, sort of our Windows NT coming through. Stuff that everybody thought was going to be cool but died, like you know Deck Alpha, um, which was actually fairly nice, and they had some of those. Uh, mini computers and like workstationy things, whether it was Sun or digital, like with that Alpha um MIPS, like all that stuff is like vanished violently like the whole idea of a kind of big powerful computer near your desk is kind of a long gone thing for most folks and the computers have gotten really really small and really really mobile um and everything old is new again i remember like um among other weird things i built the first flashlight after the iphone in like 2009 a friend of mine and we we knew some dude at Apple and got on the beta program to be developers really early and we got the SDK and we started reading the manual and we're like Oh wow! I remember this is like 2008, 2009, like that winter, and we're reading the manual. I'm like, wow, this is just like programming a next step in like 1994. And we're like, yeah, it's got the same amount of RAM, and it's like 640 by 480 on this little screen, and it's oh, it's Objective C, and we're all like, sweet! I haven't done this in 20 years. This is kind of fun. Um, and so while a lot of other programmers were kind of suffering, like learning to program the back of that stuff, we're like, sweet! This is like nostalgia. And so the iPhone, like in some sense, is a fairly ancient. Uh, I mean, certainly they revise it and move forward in time, but it actually has like really ancient roots um, going back way further than I think a lot of people realize. And uh, nothing really super new. Um, I think the thing that died that I didn't think would die would be these 4GL Visual Basic E type environments. I mean, I can say with a straight face, it is more work to build an application now than it was when I was 19. Wow. In terms, in terms of like the amount of programming you have to do and the amount of stuff you've got to know in order to sort of make it work at all. I think there's a radically higher learning curve to get what, going. What went wrong, Will? <laughs> I'm not sure anything went wrong. I think there's a big difference between making a program for 20 people and 20 million. Um, and, you know, getting it to be server based and server hosted rather than desktop PC based is pretty different. Um, there's also a lot more people involved in it. And I think the engineering culture around, you know, Unix and C and web was, I say more CS, more kind of programmer macho, I'll call it. And the culture around like desktop enterprise business software, which was kind of more get or done. And like the technology and the tools reflect a, a set of technical aesthetics that had not yet fully developed in the 90s. So nobody knew to care about them. 
maybe the easiest way to say it. <laughs> Fair enough. I know this is a big jump in topic, but it would be really cool to hear about the type of tech stack that your team uses at GLG. Yeah, GLG, we actually deliberately run, uh, I'll call it open rules tech stack. In fact, my current rule is if you can talk the rest of your individual team into doing it and you can auto deploy it on our container system, good luck. Mm -hmm. um, when in practice that means is like everything else, programming is fashion. And the fashion right now is basically Python's the most popular language. People do a lot of that, particularly uh, for server-oriented things. And JavaScript through you know, the last five, 10 years has got to become a you know, server and client uh, platform. And people are using a lot of that when they're doing with like new ES6 style stuff or um, you know, transpiling it from a JavaScript style language. And that's the bulk of the stuff ends up being Node or Python. There's you know, obviously databases of various kinds on the back end. We get a little bit of everything, like most people, like pr pr primarily uh, relational SQL based, some sort of you know, Dynamo key value store for specific cases, some key store for other cases. So it's fairly conventional that way. I guess the, the only thing that's kind of interesting about our setup compared to what most people do is we've been fully containerized since, oh goodness, the summer of 2015. Oh no, further than that, 2014. And um, like when a lot of people were still trying to get to the cloud and virtual machine, we sort of cut straight to containers. And so have like an auto deployment system wrapped around containers. Now the downside is, is we did this years before Kubernetes came out and honestly years before Docker was even finished. So we have like a fairly proprietary container system. So when we bring new people in, they say like, this is crazy. Why would anybody do this? And I stop and say, imagine that it's the summer of 2014. And then they're like, oh, <laughs> like, like didn't seem crazy at the time, but looking back now, it's kind of like, kind of wild that we built our own containerization system. But it is nice because it auto deploys. Like you push to get, the system grabs it, it runs automatically. There's built-in data testing. It's kind of cool. But most of the stuff is relatively small, uh, REST API services, and relatively uh, big sort of mobile and mobile web apps that are running stuff client side and coordinating it. For our audience that might not be familiar with the rigors of running and building software for enormous businesses like GLG and previously demand and previous to that in your career. What are some of the quality gates that you guys put in place for vetting contributions that the team makes to the team software? Yeah, we have a few and like there's, um, there's not a lot of opinions on software quality and like testing regimes. And then the one thing I'll say is the one that's not an opinion is whether or not your software makes your company money. And I tend to very much focus on the, the you know, commercial fitness of it. So I think of quality as fitness for purpose rather than some existential quality. And by that, I mean, you have like a scale effect, like how many users are you reaching? And you have like a scope effect, like how many features do you deploy? And you have a duration effect. And so in my mind, a defect is something that either has large scale, large scope, or large duration that prevents people from using your software to get it done. And I focus on minimizing any one of those variables. And so you can minimize scope by deploying very frequently, very small changes. So that any one change is tiny and you can take it in or out. You manage duration by having an automatic deployment pipeline so you can deploy or roll it back if it breaks. Because when it breaks, because real people make mistakes, it's just the reality of it. And then you have a scale variable by having the ability to deploy your software to a subset of your total users. So you never bet your whole business all at once. And so we have like an alpha beta production cascade we do where alpha could be as few as one person using the software. 
you feed them a stream, stream of change at high speed. And until your user, your target audience says, yeah, this is working for me. Then you're like, great. And you can move it into beta and evaluate it. Uh, in our case with uh, business metrics more than anything else. And we, we assess fitness for purpose by, um, we agree in a governance committee that's meeting the CEO and the general managers of the business on like what good looks like in terms of desired business impact. Run the beta, when we reach that, we do it full release. And that's the most important quality gate is not, uh, a lot of quality regimes are aimed around the notion that quality is the software does what I intended or what I said or meets my requirements. And it turns out in practice, quality is the software really works for real people to get their job done. And we focus on measuring that rather than on checking off a series of requirements. The second one that works is our code review system of uh, well, almost anything. We use pull request style, GitHub style. And having people check each other's work, that's one of those statistically known techniques in order to improve quality. So the combination of like live user beta, alpha beta testing, real business metrics and code review are the things I've settled on. Other practices that people do that they get excited about like unit testing or differential testing or like QA testing, like I honestly don't care. I don't forbid them. I don't require them. If people want to do it on their team, great. If they don't, great. Um, because there's no, there's no actual published evidence that you can find anywhere that any of those test methods have financial impact. And it's been a quest for me to find the study. And every now and then I'll you know, argue with my engineers about these test techniques. I'm like, I just don't have any proof that these other test techniques generate financial outcomes. And then they'll send me a whole bunch of blogs with a whole bunch of opinions and no financial outcomes. I'm like, yep, that's what I thought. And so yeah. it's uh, <laughs> like, that's, there's a, I didn't say there was nobody who has an opinion that this doesn't work. I said that there's no evidence that if I'm spending money on these testing techniques like QA teams, for example, or unit testing, there is no evidence that the cost of me paying for that is profitable to my investors. However, there's plenty of evidence that says live beta testing and A-B testing, it's like that whole like kind of lean startup flow that you can actually do, that you can do the financial studies inside your own company and prove that it works. Cause you can say, I've got these two versions of software and this one makes more money, sweet, done, ship it. And like that sort of sort of very commercial focus rather than I'll call it requirements focus is sort of something unique to our, our quality regime compared to a lot of places. This is great advice for tech leads or engineering team leads who might be wanting to bring initiatives to a CTO like yourself. <laughs> well, yeah, and depending upon, I mean, certainly there's a lot of like speeds and stripes of CTOs and CIOs, but like the bigger your company gets, the more of a, I'll call it actual executive job it turns into where you have lots of P&L and financial responsibility and the, the technology parts are awesome, but they're a tool in the toolbox, they're not the goal. Yeah, I, I mean, from the perspective of Blog posts are not a very compelling uh, argument. <laughs> no, no, blog posts, and I'm a little bit hard knuckle about it. Um, blog posts are the testimonial of a stranger. They're not, they're not science, they're not data. Um, it's, and it's not, uh, uh, argument by rhetoric is just argument, right? You know, it's like a business is, there's lots of things you could measure and decide. And you know, resorting to rhetoric is what you do when you can't get the data to figure out the real answer. Uh, so I, I, I can imagine that on your scale of experience from when you were you know, first setting up cmc.edu uh, to an audience, a very small audience to what you, the types of systems and software. Yeah, I, I, I might have been the audience. Like it might have been just me. <laughs> right? yeah. I'm, I'm guessing that you moved through a number of 
uh, environments about testing regime. And I think a lot of companies and organizations uh, adopt testing retroactively in reaction yeah. to production incidents. And I'm guessing you've had your fair share of production incidents in your career. Is, 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 is that what has informed your opinion about testing regimen and uh, what you push? You know, surprisingly, no. Um, I mean, what's informed my notion about uh, testing regimen is actually mentorship more than anything else. Like I remember David Black, great guy, um, partner at a big East Coast venture venture fund that's more like a private equity fund when you really think about it, um, was coming in doing due diligence on my company, Pluck, and this is like 2008, um, and we're doing code review, and I'm showing him all my unit tests, and God, we're proud of our unit tests. We have like almost complete, like just under 100% code coverage, tests for everything, and he's looking at the code, and that was like sort of state-of-the-art thinking at the time, and he's like, this is great. You've got all these tests. It looks like you've got about a line of tests for, you know, for every line of code. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're really... We're on top of this. And he's like, so you wrote twice as much code. Uh, uh, does your software make twice as much money? I'm like, oh, I never thought about it that way. And so he walked me through the notion of like, the real thing that matters on quality is like maintaining the things that are actually driving your business and making money and not breaking bugs. And because real users don't, they don't honestly want your new features. Your, your managers and your product managers and your insiders are way more interested in your new features than your customers most of the time. What real customers want is you to not break your shit. And if you give them a new feature, they want to be able to like slowly move into it. Like most people really don't like that abrupt change. And the absolute worst thing you can do is break what's making you money, particularly in a quest for a feature that more than likely no user actually wants anyhow. So he focused on differential testing, which really matters. It's like, there's a lot of ways to do it. One way to do it is just if you have like a batch program, you run two versions of the software and you like save the output to a file of like literally run diff. And then you look at the diff and go, yeah, that's totally what I intended and then save it. The other one is like live A-B testing where you're like, hey, I give this to a handful of users and then all the rest of the users have the old version and whatever our business goal is, are we really meeting that goal? Send it over to it. And so my, my testing regime was really influenced by that set of conversations with him over about a two year period much more so than production incidents. Production incidents don't bother me as much as they bother some people because the reality of it is, is everything breaks. Like, like Amazon, great, fantastic. Three pretty sizable outages in the last two years, uh, whether from S3 or Dynamo uh, and some networking. And the richest guy in the world can't afford computers that work all the time. So what makes anybody think I can? So I just don't, I don't stress it that much. If your business can't live through an outage, you've got a brittle business. I mean, you can't be like broken all the time. Like it's, I mean, but, or you can, Twitter never worked. Like Twitter didn't work from basically 2004 to like 2007. And it didn't matter because the value proposition was so compelling. Um, it's just not, there's almost no businesses where perfect is the minimum viable product. And if it is, you should totally pick a different business because it's, it's going to blow up. You, you've got, you've got your, your contemporaneous news stories like Boeing, where there are definitely fields of physical engineering where, where, you must, I mean, there is a failure rate to everything. But or not must. You know what's going to happen? Boeing's not going to go out of business. Fair enough. I mean, it's a shame it kills people, but it's not, it's not going to kill Boeing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I don't own Boeing stock, so I'll disclose that. But uh... Yeah, yeah I, don't, I mean, I don't either. <laughs> but it's like, like the, the, Boeing will not go out of business from two crashed airplanes. Believe me, far more than two airplanes have crashed. It's just really, it's become very, very, very rare, right? Mm -hmm. 
and it's and it's it is shocking now because planes don't really crash anymore. Um, so. I think I think one testing regime that I've become more mindful of of late is that instead of maybe unit tests, ultimately, like you say, does your software run? <laughs> like uh, just yeah. to, just even booting the server process is a reasonable test in some ways uh, without runtime errors and. Uh, you know, in, in physical engineering and like uh, the Boeing testing, they probably do. They use purpose-built languages that uh, disallow runtime errors, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm curious. In 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 the in your career, what what have you seen when it comes to uh, boot time testing and and the the instrumenting you can do to uh, make sure that release candidates, you know, at least, at least boot. <laughs> at least boot, yeah, that, that's actually built into our containerization regime where we actually, we run, uh, every time you push the code to GitHub, we actually run a build and deploy into a container and then it's like a health check. Mm -hmm. And so the idea is like the, the, the sort of bare minimum fully automatic test is your program can build itself and start and answer some basic query. And that query can often be really dumb, like, do you respond to port 80 and say hello? Mm -hmm. Or it can be relatively sophisticated from, for fancier applications. But that notion of a power on self-test uh, in the software is something that we do all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's not the world's greatest test, but if you can't pass that one, it ain't gonna do anything else. It's sort of a, sort of a basic theory of it. That's fair. Um, unit testing is nice, but it's, what's the, the fundamental problem with unit testing is it tests that the program matches the programmer's intention. However, there's no evidence that the programmer's intention matches the user's commercial intention encoded in the unit test. So you end up, you can end up with perfect unit testing and a commercially useless piece of software really easily because mm -hmm. um, it doesn't test for, am I working on the right thing? Mm -hmm. Fair enough, fair enough. While we still have time, I do want to ask you about a different topic besides software quality and, and whatnot. Oh, yeah. Is on the topic of interviewing software engineers. You've been in tech leadership roles, engineering leadership roles for quite a while. Uh, right. what, are, what are some of your opinions about how to evaluate software engineering talent? You know, the biggest thing I've learned is to not interview people for interview skills because you'll miss out on really good engineers that way and you'll end up hiring very charming. Uh, people that spend all their time being charming. And so we've settled on a protocol that's completely focused on what we just call show and tell. We'll do a very quick phone screen where we'll ask people open-ended opinion questions. My favorite one these days is to ask people like, if you could dream up any job, any project in any country with any number of people you're working with, with any language, tell me all about this fantasy project and what would be involved. And just to see what kind of ideas they have and what kinds of things they're interested in and you know, kind of sort of string together a concept. And, you know, assuming that they're even remotely engaged, you know, in wanting to build stuff, which is usually easy to suss out with that question, we, we put them in um, a scenario where they come in with a their own laptop, their own code, so something that's theirs, not something from work that they don't have IP rights to, but something of their own. Put it on the projector, there's six or eight engineers in the room, they do show and tell. They show us their code, they show us their app, they tell us what it does, we walk through the code, we ask questions about the code. And it's like a simultaneous test of, can they use a computer? Like little things, like there's plenty of people who can't type 
or use a computer and it instantly susses them out structurally in the interview. I know that sounds really dumb, but it, it turns out it matters. Um, it's also, can they interact with that, that group? Like it's, it's not, you know, they don't have to be like on show or super charming or exciting, but like software is a team sport. Can they engage in that team activity at all? Uh, and, uh, you know, answer and ask questions. Do they get ridiculously defensive? Are they open to other people's ideas? Like I'll notoriously ask in interviews like, okay, that's great. Show me the horrible, horrible part of the code you were hoping to not show me. And then let's talk about three different ways to do it better and see if you can get them, get them engaged in that conversation. Mm -hmm. um, which is actually kind of fun, but you can you can sort of find the person who's like, uh, I'll say, I'm perfect, which is not somebody you really want to work with. Uh, and you can find people who are open-minded to different ideas and you can make kind of a game of like, let's think of three different ways to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you take them to lunch, you know, see if they have any questions of their own, describe the business, go through it. It's nice because it takes one to two hours tops. You can get it done in the middle of the day. Um, it avoids stupid trivia questions. Like a lot of programming interview regimes are stupid trivia questions that have nothing to do with the actual business of writing software. But by having people show a real program of their own device or that they've done with their friends, that's like an actual thing, you're, you're, you're assessing their abilities based on their ability to build stuff, not based on their ability to talk about real stuff. Fair enough. Now I'm certainly not interviewing for you for a job, but I am curious how you would answer the question. <laughs> Specifically, what if, if with any team, anywhere, any problem, what are you interested in working on? Oh, I tell you the one thing I'm like sort of like ridiculous about is remote work. Um, I think that the tradition of office space and the sort of commensurate energy consumption, real estate cost, carbon commute time, like in the first world, Northern hemisphere, corporate world, the number one thing that we could do to improve the maximum number of people's quality of life and improve the environment at the same time is get rid of the traditional offices and office space. So if I could work on absolutely any project, it would be not necessarily software, though that might be part of it, but like a broad technology plus legal plus tax plus social movement to get people much more comfortable with distributed and global work. Uh, to give to give basically everybody in the northern hemisphere an hour and a half of life back a day, and cut down carbon emissions by maybe twenty five to forty percent if once you count all that real estate and commute transfer costs. I on that note, there is an incredible article I read recently about why telecommuting hasn't taken off, and I'll I'll share it in the show notes. I don't recall the, sure. the name of the author or the article. Uh, although the point that the author made that I found really interesting is that the reason people still opt for in-person physical uh, office space and communicating is that there's a prisoner's dilemma situation between employees and employers where being in person is the highest fidelity form of communication and full-time employment is all about signaling loyalty communicating that you are, you know, working hard. Um, mm -hmm. Although, you know, in an ideal world, people aren't rewarded for working hard. They're rewarded for results. Uh, mm -hmm. But people, if you look at two employees reporting to the same employer, one who telecommutes, one who doesn't, the one who doesn't will, you know, be able to communicate at a higher bandwidth, lower latency than the other. And when 
decision points are reached for the employer, whether that's performance reviews or layoffs, there's a rational behavior that manifests in uh, the labor force when it comes to declining to telecommute or choosing jobs where they don't telecommute over jobs where they would telecommute. I'll, I'll share it in the show notes. I'll share it with you. But I yeah, I'll take a look at that. Super interesting. I agree. Yeah, we do. I mean, we as my engineering team here, we do a huge amount of telecommuting. And like my broad, my, my operating rule right now is if you're in a city and or country and or state where my accounting guys say we can do payroll, that's cool with me. And so, <laughs> you know, we have like 200 people on the engineering team here, plus or minus. And everyone works from home. I'm home right now my boss our ceo was home this morning and like he's 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 maybe not into it quite as much as i am in terms of like i have it as like a social quest and i think he has a more functional like hey i can retract better employees uh like point of view from it, which is like like mine's a little bit more idealistic his is pretty practical um well i but, can i can vouch for for jobs at uh jobs at glg and i think we should definitely plug them um oh yeah We'll include a link in the show notes to the jobs page for GLG and specifically Will's team under software engineering. <laughs> um, yeah, we definitely we definitely let people work remote and we're set up with almost all remote teams and we actively promote. I've got one engineering team where the engineering VP is a little habitual about wanting everybody to be in the office. And it's my mission this year to cure him of it. Um, <laughs> okay, well, yeah, like I, like I said, I encourage people to check out jobs at GLG and with Will. Uh, Will, thank you for coming on. Cool, thanks. For more, visit us on iTunes or our website at theaccidentalengineer.com.